some of us were at uh, Daddy Daughter. I know Harlan was there with us uh, last night till late, till the wee hours of the morn with our daughters. So uh, we're, if, if we have bags under eyes, that's why. I also had a fairy tattoo on my face, but that came off in the shower. So I don't. We went to Amy's Ice Cream after the dance, and I, I like had glowing sunglasses, like those neon bendable sunglasses, a, a fairy tattoo on my face, a carnation sticking out of my ear, this super colorful daddy bracelet that my daughter made in like a suit and tie. And so I walk into Amy's ice cream and they're like, and they, they're kind of weird, you know? I mean, they, Amy's ice cream is kind of weird. And they're kind of like, all right, do y'all have something going on tonight? And I was like, no, we're, we're totally, this is just a normal Saturday evening for the Brummett family. Uh, anyway, good morning to everybody. Uh, you can grab, I've got some Bibles over here. We're only going to look at two verses today, but if you want, grab a Bible. I also have those listed out on the sermon handouts. If you want to grab one of those, you can as well. Uh, just to kind of give you a little bit of context, we're actually starting the, the actual book of Daniel today. Last week, we did an overview, and we began with that overview by looking at how the book of Daniel looks at three aspects of Israel. It looks at Israel's past, it looks at Israel's present circumstances back in the 6th century B.C., and it looks forward to Israel's future, both near and far, not to mention the future of the world. And so this week, we're only going to look at the first two verses of Daniel, and here's why. Because they're absolutely crucial to understanding the overall message and themes of the, the book of Daniel. If we miss what is being conveyed in these first two verses, we're going to miss a lot as we go through this series. So these two verses set the stage for Daniel historically in the context of real human history, but they also set the context of Daniel theologically, and they introduce the major theme that we're going to see all throughout Daniel, and that is the theme of God's sovereignty. And that word sovereignty just means God's supreme power and authority over all things. When we say the Lord Almighty, that's what we're talking about when we sing those songs. Um, as I was looking around uh, at some different things this last week, I got this uh, Crossway podcast notification. Crossway is a publisher that publishes a lot of really good stuff. And one of the, the authors they publish is Paul Tripp. And, and Paul Tripp was in this episode on the podcast called What You Believe About God's Sovereignty Matters for Real Life. And, uh, and it was in the context of, I was reading this article on how so often we think theology and doctrine is sort of just excessive, it's excessively academic, it's just too many details, it's just, we want to kind of clean up our life like Marie Kondo and get rid of all that clunky, sort of cumbersome theology and doctrine. And it was really attacking the heart of that tendency in our people. And at the bottom of it was this link to this podcast on how God, the doctrine of God's sovereignty actually affects our real life, or at least it should. And so Paul Tripp, who's a, a, a biblical counselor, a Christian writer, you've probably heard of him, perhaps. He had this to say about God's sovereignty. He said, the Bible doesn't say that life just runs mechanically by a set of natural laws, but that there's a person who is directing and controlling the world. And what makes that wonderful, he writes, is that this person is holy in every way, good in every way, loving in every way, the definition of wisdom, and has unlimited and infinite power. 
rather than that doctrine, that is the doctrine of God's sovereignty, rather than that doctrine making us afraid or being the source of great debate, and we see that, surely, it ought to first just give us rest of heart. I love that. The doctrine of God's sovereignty should first and foremost just give us rest of heart. Think of how small your sovereignty and my sovereignty is, he says. He goes on to say, and I love this, he says, I lack so much sovereignty that I lose my keys. I can't even control a little set of inanimate objects, let alone control my life or my relationships or the circumstances around me. I just love that. He can't even, he can't even control his keys, much less everything else going on in, in the world and in his life. And the quote really resonated with me because I feel the exact same way. In fact, I would challenge anybody on this. I think this is just true, and I don't think you would argue with me on it. Life teaches all of us over and over and over again that we lack sovereignty, that we cannot control our lives or our relationships or our circumstances ultimately. I was reminded of this uh, even as I was typing out this sermon because some of the keys on my laptop stopped working. Has this ever happened to anybody? I'm typing on my laptop and all of a sudden the V and the B and the front slash and the space bar and the control, the control button stopped working. I can't make things bold anymore without using the mouse to click on stuff. So it's like, even like as I'm writing a sermon on God's sovereignty, it reminds me that I am completely out of control, even to control whether or not the keys on my keyboard work. And you guys probably have a million examples of that as well. But when we are faced with our lack of control in this life, we basically have two options. Are you ready for this? You got two options. If we doubt God's goodness and or God's sovereignty that he is in control, then what's going to happen? How are we going to respond? How do we respond? When we doubt God's goodness and sovereignty and then we come up against a situation that shows us how little control we actually have, the illusion of our control, we get anxious and fearful. We get anxious and fearful. And then we get sad and depressed and overwhelmed and all the other stuff that goes on with that. That's one option. However, if we trust our loving, sovereign God, then we can experience, actually experience peace and, and a sense of purpose and contentment in any and every circumstance in this life, even when it feels like the wheels are absolutely falling off our lives. We can still experience those things if we can trust God in that way. Our good God, this is the big idea for today, our good God is sovereign over all things, so we can trust in him at all times. So in today's passage, we're taught two important things. We're taught to trust the goodness of the sovereignty, the goodness and the sovereignty of God in two incredibly difficult situations. And they're, re they're reflected in the two verses we're going to look at today. So the first situation where it's really hard to trust in God's goodness and his sovereignty is when we see God's people suffering. I'm not going to say when we see good people suffering. I'm going to bypass that. I'm going to say when we see God's people, people who are trying uh, or are called out by God, identified as God's people, okay, and we see them suffering, we think, is God really good? Is God really sovereign? Why would God's people be suffering if that were the case? 
And then the second is that we, when we see God's enemies succeeding, and that's almost the more difficult of the two, to be honest with you. Not just when we see God's people suffering do we go, man, is God really good? Is God really sovereign? But when we see these wicked people, when we see people worshiping Satan on stage at the Grammys, and then the world hands them a Best Pop Duo award, and we go, really? Like, they get all the money, and they get all the, st- and they can do, and the, uh, right? And that makes us wonder, is God, is God even paying attention? So look, first point, our good God is sovereign over the suffering of his people. He's sovereign over the suffering of his people. And we see this in the very first verse in Daniel. Look at what it says. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. Siege warfare, not not a pretty thing. Devastating, horrible thing. And so all of a sudden, Jerusalem, the capital of God's people, the location of God's temple, is under siege. So when we read this verse out of context, we just jump into the book of Daniel, it seems like all of a sudden Judah is under attack. Like all of a sudden God's people are being attacked by Babylon and and they're under siege. But think about this. When we go back and read the rest of the context of the Bible, the rest of the Old Testament scriptures, the law and the prophets and the Psalms, we realize that this attack by Babylon, by the Babylonians, it should have come as no surprise to God's people. No surprise. There was an abundance of warning. God had been warning his wayward people, Israel, For more than 700 years, ever since the time of Moses in the Exodus, he had been predicting their disobedience, their rebellion, and the punishment that would fall on them as a result of that disobedience and rebellion. All the way back to Moses, and certainly throughout all the prophets. And Jehoiakim murdered the prophets that came with that message from God, right? As did many of the other kings of of Judah and Israel. So in 722 B.C., now you don't have to write down all these dates, but 722 B.C., 8th century B.C., God had allowed the Assyrian army to scatter the northern tribes of Israel. Little quick, super quick history lesson. King David, King Solomon, kingdoms united, all 12 tribes. King Solomon, the wisest man except for Jesus who ever lived, has a son who's an absolute fool. He does some silly things kingdom breaks apart north and south. It's like the civil war. Uh, And there's 10 tribes on the north. There's two tribes in the south. Judah has Jerusalem in the south. And then they both go off, (laughs) wheels off, okay? They both rebel against God. The northern uh, tribes, we call the kingdom of Israel, they get taken out by the Assyrians in 722 BC. The Syrians were the big dogs on the global scene. They were huge, massively uh, successful uh, basically uh, empire. It was the largest empire the world had ever seen at that time, okay? So they take out the northern tribes. And then when the Assyrian army comes down to take over Judah in the south, the Lord actually relents because his people in the kingdom of Judah repented and turned back to him under the good king Hezekiah. There were a couple good kings, even after David, and Hezekiah was one of those. And so Hezekiah's like, please, God, show us mercy. And God shows them mercy. And the Assyrians are turned back, and they get another hundred years of being the southern kingdom, okay? 
But after Hezekiah, more and more bad kings lead Judah back into a deepening wickedness and rebellion against God. And the last of the good kings of Judah was, by the way, if you're going to name your kid a Bible name, go back and check the history of the name, okay? Don't name them like, uh, well, I won't get into them because maybe we've got some people... um, (laughs) Hey, the Bible represents everyone as sinful, right? The only perfect, the hero of the Bible is Jesus, right? So all these people have problems, but some of them have pretty significant problems, okay? But one of the good ones, besides Hezekiah, okay, was Josiah. And Josiah was a king in the line of David down in the southern kingdom. And Josiah, ultimately, even though he had a long, relatively long uh, rule, he was killed by the Egyptians uh, in 609 BC. Again, about 700 years after the fall of the northern kingdom. He gets killed fighting the Egyptians. And then the Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, he decides to assert his power over the kingdom of Judah. And so he takes one of Josiah's sons and he renames him That's an identity thing. He renames him and he sticks him on the throne of Judah to basically be his servant. And that was the wicked king Jehoiakim. That's the guy we're talking about in this very first verse in Daniel. He's a guy, he was Josiah's son, but he was wicked as all get out. And he was actually appointed to be the king by the king of Egypt, right? So finally, After 700 years of warnings over and over again, the Lord makes good on his promise to punish Judah, his people Judah and that kingdom, through the military conquest, not of the Assyrians, they're gone by now. Now they've been taken over by the Babylonians, an even bigger empire with even stronger armies. And so now the Babylonians come down with this really incredible military leader named Nebuchadnezzar. You've probably heard of him in the you know, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego songs in, in uh, children's ministry. Nebuchadnezzar comes in, and after he defeats the Egyptians, and he gets crowned, after his father dies, he gets crowned the king of Babylon in 605 BC. Nebuchadnezzar quickly attacks the Egyptian kingdoms that are serving Egypt. And so he goes down to Judah, and he attacks Judah, and he lays siege to it, and Judah is brought under the control of the Babylonian Empire. And this is probably when Daniel and his friends were sent to Babylon to be trained because he needed some promising young Jewish lads to raise up in the court at Babylon so he could use them and their knowledge of the culture and language and everything else to control Judah, okay? I realize there's a lot of history, but this is an important verse. And it's like you don't realize how much there is going on here in this one verse at the beginning of Daniel. And so uh, uh, even after the Lord had promised to put Judah under the subjugation of the Babylonians, his people continued to reject his word by resisting the Babylonian overlords. This should tell us something about our wicked hearts sometimes and how resistant we are to God. Even after he does what he says he's going to do and brings in the Babylonians and they subjugate Judah, the kingdom of Judah, even after that, they're trying to rebel against the Babylonians. And God said, this is the instrument that I'm using to punish you. It's not going to go well if you try and buck them, if you try and establish your own, uh, you know, reestablish your own sovereignty, right? And so they're trying all these, like, they're, you know, uh, partnering with Egypt again, and they're trying all this political machinations to try and, you know, buck the very people that God said he was going to place over them and put them in subjugation to for a period of time. And yet they still don't want to listen to God's word 
and they still want to do their own thing, and it does not go well. In fact, because of those rebellions against the Babylonians, they, that eventually led to two more sieges, two more attacks on Judah, on the kingdom of Judah and Jerusalem in 597 and 587 BC, so just a couple years later, and they were increasingly devastating. And the last of those sieges in 587 and 586 BC, that's when Jerusalem was just gutted. I mean, it was, it was absolutely destroyed. They ripped apart the temple, the holy place, the, you know, just destroyed the whole thing. They killed a lot of people in Jerusalem and Judah. And then they sent most of the other ones back to Babylon to be, in servi- to be servile to the Babylonian Empire. And, and that was the end of the, the sacrificial system. Uh, it was the end of the, 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 uh, the, the temple. You couldn't make sacrifices because the temple was gone. It was, the, it was seemingly the end of the line of David's kings, David's sons who were in his line to become kings. And so Daniel, the book of Daniel, begins with this historical backdrop to Israel's exile that is also, and I hope you'll see this, deeply theological. And it points to the sovereignty of God over his people, that he is sovereign over the judgment and the punishment of their rebellion, but he is also sovereign over their salvation. And that's an important thing to grasp onto and hold onto as we, as we go through this book. Our good God is sovereign over the suffering of his people. Um, one time when I was in Germany with some of the folks from the church, um, I w- we were in uh, Frankfurt, and we were at this restaurant, and I was talking to the restaurant manager, uh, and I forget, we were waiting on some food or something like that, but we got in this conversation, and there was also this female pastor there from a church in Germany, and she was standing there, and I was standing there, and we were talking to this, this uh, gentleman who wasn't a Christian, um, but had, you know, kind of was interested in Christianity and asking some questions. And so we're there, and I asked the manager if, if he needed prayer for anything. And he shared with me, like, some really intimate stuff, like he, the, the, uh, the circumstances surrounding the birth and health of his child that was really causing a lot of uh, anxiety and fear and sadness. And I was like, I felt privileged just to, to pray for this guy in this really heartbreaking circumstances in his life. But then that, the woman that was there also, she heard him saying the same thing. And I will, I will never, ever forget what she told him as this man sharing his suffering. She essentially said, with a smile on her face, she goes, isn't it, isn't it great to know that God is not sovereign? And I was like, what? What did she just say? She goes, isn't it good to know that God's not in absolute control of all things? Because if he was, and you were suffering like that, then he wouldn't be good. And she's a pastor in a church. And he's nodding his head, and I'm like, well, I felt like I was in bizarro land. I just, I wasn't expecting her to say that. And so she says, isn't it good? And her point was that if God really had absolute control over all things, then this man and his child would not be suffering. Do you see how how overly simplistic and harmful that is. All of a sudden, if we can make God less than what he is, then we can contain him in our reasoning, in our ability to understand the pain and the suffering that we're facing in this life. If we can just take him off his throne of sovereignty. 
And so she expressed relief that because God is not sovereign, then we can still believe that he's good even when we suffer. And that's how she resolved it. And thank God I had an opportunity to pray for him and just encourage him and and speak truth about who God is and what God is like and how much God loves this man despite the fact that he was facing these challenges. But the Bible teaches us that God is sovereign, folks, even when we suffer. God is still sovereign. So the first thing we have to do is to understand why we suffer. And I can't go into the depths of this conversation on suffering and God's sovereignty. And if you have questions about it, and I know that this is a tender topic because we all suffer in different ways. So I'm always game to talk to you all more about this, but we need to get this at the beginning of the book of Daniel because we're going to see it over and over again. But there's different reasons for why we suffer. There's essentially three reasons. One, guys, we live in a fallen, broken world where there's pain and predation and, and natural disasters and people get eaten by lions and fall off buildings and, I mean, get diseases and, and, and physically die. And there's poverty and there's warfare, right? We just live in a broken, fallen world where we experience suffering of all kinds. And it's not necessarily our, our fault in those times. It's just we live in this broken world. The second reason we suffer is because we, we are surrounded by sinners, we're surrounded. Our neighbors, our coworkers, our bosses, our family members are sinners, and they say things, and they do things, and they don't say things, and they don't do things that hurt us because they're inherently selfish in their sinfulness. And the third reason we experience suffering and pain is because we're sinful. And, and sometimes we suffer because we make sinful decisions that have consequences. And sometimes, well, Job's friends, y'all remember them, their best care for Job was when they were quiet, and then they opened their mouths, and then they attributed every bit of his suffering to some sin that he had committed that he just needed to dig back out of his life and repent of it and get it out there and confess it and be forgiven so that he could return to a life free of suffering and full of prosperity and health and wealth and all these wonderful things. That was bad advice by Job's friends, okay? Not all of our suffering is our fault. It's, it's the fact that we're surrounded by sinners also and just in a big broken world until God restores it. And as Christians, we suffer because we live in a fallen world that is broken, but in Christ we have the hope that it will one day be restored. Guys, that's what we were singing about, about joining the resurrection and, and this, this glorification, this being glorified with Christ and this restoration of all things, the new heavens and the new earth. This is our hope in Christ, is that we won't always forever be in a fallen, broken world where we experience the pain and the suffering that goes along with that. And as Christians, we also suffer because other people say and do things to us that are harmful. There's people today, Coptic Christians in Egypt and elsewhere around the world, Christians of all different stripes, all different ethnicities, all different backgrounds, who are being persecuted simply because of their faith in Christ. They're being lynched in places because of their faith in Christ. And so as Christians, we do face suffering at the hands of others. And it's not always that. Sometimes it's just a snarky comment that has nothing to do with our faith. Or it's a hurtful thing that our coworker or boss or whoever does or something like this, a family member, right? But in Christ, folks, we have the power to forgive even the most horrific acts of abuse and persecution. And I do not speak those words lightly. 
But in Christ, through the power of the Holy Spirit, we have the ability to forgive even the most heinous, egregious sins against us. Believe it or not. I hope you'll believe it. And then, and as we all know, Christians suffer as a result of our own sins sometimes. But in Christ, we can be forgiven of even the most egregious transgressions in our own lives. We don't have to carry around the shame and the guilt of that for the rest of eternity because Christ died for us and rose again and ministers on our behalf today at the right hand of God the Father in heaven. This is how the gospel intersects with all these different areas of suffering that we face. And that's why we can say that we're more than conquerors in Christ. So even so, sin always has consequences. Sometimes, and getting back to the context of ancient Israel, sometimes God, in his grace and mercy, mutes the effects of our sinful choices. Right? When Hezekiah repented, he didn't bring the full weight of punishment for all those years of of wickedness and rebellion and all the terrible things all those kings and people had done, he mutes the effects of their sins by, by showing them mercy in that moment. And sometimes he does that in our lives. Sometimes we do something so boneheaded, so selfish, and it should just blow up everything in our life, and somehow it doesn't, and praise God for that in those times. But sometimes he allows us to feel the full force of the consequences of our own sins. But either way, we can know that there is now no condemnation in Christ. Remember Paul in Romans 8.1? Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And so we, we can know that through faith in Jesus Christ that we do not suffer everlasting condemnation, that we act, actually are forgiven and will be forgiven and will be not, we are judged righteous now. We are, you know, that's what justification means. It's that we've already been said, called not guilty. We've already been called righteous and holy by God. And he's making us more righteous as it works, as he works righteousness out in our life, the righteousness of Christ. But one day we are going to be righteous and glorified with Christ. No more sin, no more doubt, no more rebellion, no more any of that. And that's, that's what we have to look forward to. There is now no condemnation in Christ, but here's what I want you to hear, that even though we don't face condemnation, God's condemnation in Christ as Christians, even though we don't, we will experience in this life the loving discipline of a loving Heavenly Father. I'm not saying that everything you're suffering right now is your fault and it's God just punishing you because he's so mad at you and he's so put out with you just you just won't listen. That's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is that God loves us and God knows us and he knows the depths of our idolatry. He knows the depths of the wicked tendencies in our hearts that we do not give credence to that we we do not even appreciate how. idolatrous, selfish, prideful, wicked we can be, but God does. And so in his love, we as Christians adopted into the family of God through faith in Christ will receive the loving rebuke and correction and discipline of our loving father. The author of Hebrews talks about that. And so we shouldn't be surprised when we experience that discipline because it's for our good and it's for the good of others around us and it's ultimately for God's glory. 
In ancient Israel, God's people were promised punishment for disobedience all the way back to Moses, all the way back to Adam and Eve. In that day, you will surely die, remember? But he also graciously promised salvation for his people. You got to understand that. Yes, he was saying, if you're disobedient, you're going to be punished. But all throughout, even before he talked about the punishment, he was talking about the salvation. He was talking about the grace and the mercy and the forgiveness and the love. And so those things are both running. uh, Those are two tracks that Israel is running down in terms of his promises. He promised salvation. And folks, the remnant that survived and even thrived in exile in Babylon, that, that was exported from the promised land, that he still took care of and shepherded even in Babylon, that and, and who would eventually come back to the promised land with even more of God's promises of salvation and, and final restoration of all things. That's part of what the book of Daniel is. It's, even, it's God heaping on even more promises and even more information about his salvation. And they were able to return to the land with even more than they had gone with. And as Christians, our good shepherd assures us that we will face all sorts of suffering in this life for all sorts of different reasons, but we can take heart knowing that the Lord is sovereign over the suffering of his people. And because he is sovereign, our suffering will only and ever be temporary. Period. Our suffering as followers of Jesus Christ can only and will only ever be temporary. And that's what Paul's talking about when he says this momentary light affliction when in the balance with the weight of the glory that we anticipate through faith in Christ, in the resurrection, and in the new heavens and the new earth, and the rest of eternity, when Paul weighs those things out, he says these things are even worth comparing to the glory that we have that awaits us in Christ. Now, I'm not diminishing the hard stuff you guys are going through. We are going through hard stuff, too. But as incredible encouragement to my heart to know that, even if I don't experience it necessarily, but to be able to, through faith, to apprehend those things. It's a challenge to trust God when we experience suffering, but let me flip now and say sometimes we face an, ev- an even more challenging reality, is that, and that is when we see the wicked prospering. It gnaws at us when we see the wicked prospering those that we would say are are wicked people and something good happens to them. So here's the second point. Our good God is sovereign over the success of his enemies. He's sovereign over the success of his enemies. And we see this addressed in verse 2. Look at it with me. And the Lord handed Jehoiakim, king of Judah, over to Nebuchadnezzar, along with some of the vessels, that's the cups and the spoons and all the, all the different uh, golden bowls and plates and things in the temple, with some of the vessels of the house of God. And he brought them to the land, Nebuchadnezzar brought them to the land of Shinar, to the house of his God, and he brought the vessels into the treasury of his God or his gods. So everything in this verse points to the sovereignty of God over the enemies of his people. That word Lord, there's two different words that get translated Lord in our English translations. There's the covenant name of God, Yahweh, I am who I am. And that evokes the idea of God as a covenant-making God, a a relational God. But then there's also Adonai, which is where you see Lord in in the lowercase O-R-N-D usually in our translations. And that Adonai emphasizes the Lord's ownership, rulership, and sovereignty specifically over Israel that he is the owner, ruler, and sovereign over Israel. So the exalted Lord of Israel 
handed over his people, and that literally means he gave his people to King Nebuchadnezzar. In other words, the defeat of Judah is not attributed to the military prowess, to the skill, to the might of King Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonians. Although they were a mighty army, they're nothing compared to the God of heaven's hosts. And so even in this verse, the context of the Lord shows us, and that that word for he gave them over shows us that it's not Nebuchadnezzar asserting his will against God and God's people. It's God in light of his promises to his people, handing them over to this pagan king that would destroy their capital and their temple and exile their people. And the Lord also hands over the holy vessels from his holy temple, the things that you're not even supposed to touch unless you're a certain priest covered by certain sacrifices at certain times, and yet he hands those over to this unclean pagan Gentile emperor to go stick them in this God's treasury house in Babylon. And so this pagan king's allowed, and and by the way, it's literally the house of the God, the vessels from the house of the God. And so this pagan king takes the holy things from the house of the one true God of Israel, and he puts them in the house of his gods, which we know from the context and just from life that in biblical truth, that they're not gods at all. They're fake gods. They're false idols. And yet God allows his holy things to end up in these places. And interesting, the Lord had promised King Hezekiah that much of the stuff in Jerusalem would eventually be brought to Babylon. And it happened about 100 years later. And he says that in 2 Kings. So even the reference to the land of Shinar, did you see that? And you're like, where's Shinar? That is a direct textual link back to Genesis 11. Remember the Tower of Babel? Kids, you probably remember that. Tower of Babel. That was on the plain of Shinar. That was the land of Shinar. It's linking back to Genesis 11. And sometimes it's, it's translated in our English translations as Babylon or the land of Babylon or Babylonia. But it's literally the land of Shinar. And it's supposed to remind us of the Tower of Babel, which was the home of God's enemies and the place of his judgment against man's rebellion. You remember that? It's like they wanted to build a tower up to heaven and reject God. And they were all talking the same language. They were all pretty smart, thought they could just build a tower to heaven, kind of become gods themselves, right? Uh, And remember what God had to do? It said God came down to take a look at their lofty tower. Uh, Even in the text, it's like kind of a joke. It's like God in the highest heavens comes down to see what man's doing down here in opposition to him. And so it's supposed to evoke the story. And like Daniel, that story emphasized the sovereignty of the Lord over those who had set themselves up against him, over his enemies, So even when God's enemies seem to succeed, they seem to be experiencing success in this life on this earth, God remains sovereign. Um, Earlier, we pondered the question of why do bad things happen to God's people? How can bad things happen to God's people? And God still be sovereign and still be good. And now we have to consider this related question of why do good things happen to God's enemies? And in order to understand that, we have to see this life in light of eternity. Guys, listen to me on this one. And this is a good one for you kids to understand too. If, if we think that this life is it, we've already lost, right? If we think that this life is it, then we're going to be looking to live our best life now and all that stuff. And we're going to be looking at how unfair it seems that, you know, this Vladimir Putin has a hundred billion dollars and we don't and 
all this stuff. We're going to make all these comparisons. We're going to be envious. We're going to be jealous. We're going to wonder why. But folks, the Bible never speaks about this life on earth as though that's it. It always speaks in light of God's eternal purposes and in light of eternity itself. And so look at what scripture says about this. In the Psalms, if you want to go read two great Psalms about the prospering of the wicked and how we should understand that, go read Psalm 37 and Psalm 73. 37, 73, the flip. The first one, Psalm 37, David writes, he says, Do not get upset because of evildoers. Do not be envious of wrongdoers. And then he says this, For they will wither quickly like the grass and decay like the green plants. In other words, they've got this minimal little time to be green and and look all healthy and fruitful and like it's just amazing, but they're going to wither just like the grass withers in just a moment. And then Asaph in Psalm 73 writes this. He says, when I thought of understanding this, he's talking about the wicked prospering and how the righteous suffer and the wicked prosper. He says, when I thought of understanding this, it was troublesome in my sight. Don't you love that frankness and honesty? Like, I was thinking about this, and I was troubled. And then he says this, Until I entered the sanctuary of God, then I perceived their end. Then I saw what they had in store for them. And all of a sudden, I wasn't envious anymore, and it didn't trouble me. The Lord is sovereign even when he allows his enemies to experience what they see as success in this life but what we know is not. So as Christians, we understand that gaining the whole world at the cost of losing your soul is not a good bargain. To gain the whole world, Grammys and billions of dollars and whatever else you can give to somebody in this life on this earth is not worth forfeiting your soul. And we know that as Christians. And we understand that it's better to be clothed in the righteousness of Christ in this life and yet have little not much money, not much celebrity, not any celebrity, just, just living a normal life, right? And kind of making it however God provides and trusting him in that. It's better to have righteousness and little than to be counted among the wicked, among God's enemies, and have all, everything you could dream of having in this life on earth. So instead of envying the successes of people who are diametrically opposed to Christian beliefs, instead of going, man, I'm over here serving the Lord and this guy's just killing it, knocking it out of the park. Instead of that attitude, instead what we're to do is pray for those people. Not like, well, I've got Jesus and you don't, you know. No, pray for them that God would bless us with opportunities to help them see the error of their ways before it's too late. Because guys, this ain't ancient Egypt. We're not burying people with a whole bunch of stuff because they're going to take it in the afterlife. All right, we know what really happens at the end of this life on earth for people that aren't in Christ. Okay, and so let's pray for them that God would humble their hearts and give us opportunities in humility ourselves to speak truth to them and to share the hope of Christ with them. And I like how Paul Tripp ends the podcast uh, that I mentioned earlier, so I'm going to end with his his statements, but. He basically ties the truth of the doctrine of God's sovereignty to our own sin and to the good news of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. So I just want you to think on these words that Paul Tripp speaks 
Uh, and we'll, we'll close it with that. He says this. He says, every doctrine, that is every Christian doctrine that the Bible teaches, like the doctrine of sovereignty, exposes the darkness of my heart. Do you believe that? Does every Christian doctrine expose the darkness in our hearts? Truth is, it does. It, it, it draws the, the, the sin out of us, you know, the truth of it. And then he goes on to explain with the doctrine of sovereignty how it does that. He goes, I struggle with God's control. Why? Because I want to be in control. I want to rule my life. I don't want anybody to disagree with me. I don't want the lady with 150 items in her grocery cart in the line in front of me. I don't want to wait for traffic. I don't ever want to be sick. I want my schedule to work every day like I planned it. So I fight against the authority of God and I can run from a location, but I can't run from that darkness in my heart. I need a savior who will rescue me and who will begin to empower me to love God's authority more than I love my own. I need a savior who will rescue me and who will begin to empower me to love God's authority more than my own. There's a way in which at the deepest level of my spiritual struggle, God's sovereignty makes me weep. He says it breaks his heart, this doctrine, this truth of God's sovereignty, makes me weep and say, Father, I wish I didn't want to be king. I wish I celebrated you as king, but today I tried again to be king. Please forgive me. Tomorrow morning when I get up, help me to worship you as king and not to try to be king myself. I just love the honesty of those words because this happens in all of our lives. And praise God, we do have a Savior who is empowering us to more and more live like he described, to more and more love God's authority and sovereignty than our own desire for authority in this life on this earth. Um, Next week, we're going to follow four Jewish youths. Now that we've got the historical theological backdrop, uh, we're going to follow these four Jewish youths into exile in Babylon, where we'll see how their faith in God's goodness and sovereignty stands firm in the face of constant temptation. And we'll start that next week. So let me pray. Please bow your heads with me.